Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Some of you guys are here faithfully every single week. Like, you don't miss church uh, unless you're out of town or sick. And uh, that's, I, I really believe that's really God's design for church and community. And, uh, and if you're here every week, uh, just about, you kind of kind of know our ebb and flow. And uh, for some of you, I already know. Like, you're sitting here, you're wondering what this message is going to be about. And for some of you, you're struggling. And here's why you're struggling. Because the handout for those of you this week that are here every week is turned sideways. And for some of you, you're thinking, that's anarchy, man. Like, don't, don't mess us up that bad. Uh, I promise you there's a purpose behind it. I really only have two sentences for you to think about this morning uh, written down, but they were long sentences. And I, I thought, man, let's turn them sideways and trip everybody up. Uh, but if that's you this morning, just give me grace, all right? Just give me mercy, and, uh, and we'll get through it together. But Mark... Chapter 5, we've been answering this question uh, in this series called Encounters. What does it look like when Jesus intersects your life? Like, what does that look like? And we've said this, the same thing uh, for the last uh, four weeks now, but it's this, that when you encounter Jesus, it requires you to do two things. It requires you to answer Who Jesus is, like what is Jesus really about? Who is he? And secondly, it requires you to adjust who you are. It requires you to answer who Jesus is, and it requires you to adjust who you are. And I'll be honest, like when we hear the word adjust, we kind of have different ideas on the spectrum of what adjustment Looks like. In fact, adjust could kind of be, in some ways, a weak word for what really is, is to happen in a person's life. But I thought of it this way. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my car engine, or my, my car, my truck, the, not the, the engine, the ignition. The ignition, for some reason, it just wouldn't turn. The key would not turn in the vehicle. And so I literally, I, like I worked on it for a while. Even Gary came out and tried to figure it out, which if Gary can't figure it out, it's not fixable right then and there. So I had to get it towed. And I got it towed to a mechanic that's here in our church that I trust. Uh, he's a godly man, and he's an honest mechanic. And, uh, and I got it over there to him, and uh, he started messing with it, and Uh, He fixed it. It was like a quick fix. He didn't even charge me for that fix because it was such an easy thing to figure out and fix that Gary, for whatever reason, couldn't figure out. (laughs) But as he was there with the vehicle, I said, you know what? I think it's near uh, like an old change. Can we go ahead and get that done? And there were a couple other things. I I said, you mind just checking it? It's an old vehicle. I've had it for like 13 or 14 years. And I said, will you mind just checking it out and, and seeing if it's okay? And and he got in there and he started looking and the timing chain that runs through my vehicle was, a, was literally like war slap out. The thing was about to snap. And he told me, he says, if this breaks, it's going to create more damage than if you would just get it fixed now. But if you guys know anything about cars, uh, the timing belt, the timing chain, chain in this one uh, was a pretty significant thing to fix. And here's what I found to be interesting. Like when we think about what our lives look like when we encounter Jesus, sometimes it's more than just fixing the ignition, right? 
Sometimes it's let's get in here and do the hard work and the costly work of really getting this thing right. Because if we let this continue in your life, it's going to create more damage. And for, for some of us, man, when we talk about encountering Jesus and adjusting who we are, it's a big deal. It's, it's, a, it's a costly thing. It's going to require some work on our part to allow the Holy Spirit of God to do what he needs to do in our lives. And so today, I want us to look at the encounter at the tombs of Gersa. The encounter at the tombs of Gersa. And it's found here in Mark chapter 5. And this, this place has many names. Like the whole region has many names. In fact, if you look at the gospel accounts of this same thing, it actually calls it different names. And it's kind of like we're in Shelby, we're in Cleveland County, we're in North Carolina, we're in the Piedmont. It's that kind of thought process that's going on. But this place was called Gersa, and it's modern day, another word, Kersi, K-U-R-S-I. And here's what's interesting about this place. According to what we're about to read, there is only one place in all the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee where this could have actually happened. The, the Sea of Galilee is 30, 33 miles of, of coastline. Circumference is 33 miles. And in that 33 miles, there's only a three-mile section. It's right here on the screen. There's only a three-mile section. I think it's going to come up. Maybe. Maybe not. It, it, it's, it's here, but there's, there it is. There's a three-mile section of coastland where this story could actually take place. And at this little place, Kersi, Gersa, at this spot, there is actually caves where tombs and where graveyards have been discovered. And this is what you're looking at here. Right here off this coast is this scene, Kersi, Gersa. Right here, there are tombs right here. And so this is where we pick up the story here in Mark chapter 5. Look with me in verse 1. Then they went, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Gersa, same place. Then they went across the lake. Who's they? It's the disciples. But notice what the very first word is. It kind of gives us a moment to pause and wonder what the then is about. Like, where were they before here? Okay? Jesus is taking his disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. So here's a map here of what that would look like. Maybe. There it is. Uh, here's a map of what this looks like here. They're up there at Capernaum area, that's where they're at, and they're going to cross over to Kersi or to Gersa, the same place. They're going to cross that lake, this massive lake there. And what happens in the chapter before, Mark chapter 4, what happens is a violent storm arises. In fact, it's so bad, they're thinking, these experienced, many of them experienced fishermen are thinking, this is it. Like, we're done for. And then Jesus gets up and literally speaks to the storm and calms the storm. And I love the last verse in Mark chapter 4 to get us to hear Mark chapter 5. It says this. Mark chapter 441 says, Who is this? The disciples were asking about Jesus. Who is this that even the wind and the waves 
obey him. They are just in awe of who Jesus is. And right here in this next little chapter of life, they're going to see something even more remarkable than just calming the storm. Look at verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, you have this story in three of the four Gospels. Matthew talks about it. Mark talks about it, which Mark is Peter's testimony. And then, uh, and, then, and then we have Luke. Luke talks about it as well. And each one of these guys recalls something different in the story that maybe the other guy didn't recall. So, for instance, Matthew recalls that there's actually two men that are here at the tombs. And then, and then Mark is really just focusing on the more vocal one. Right? He's focusing on the one that's doing the talking. Luke is, is another, he brings up another fact. He brings up the fact that this guy's naked. Which to me, I'm thinking, that'd be like number one thing to write down. Like, that's the most obvious thing you see as this guy's coming to you is, all right, this guy's naked, right? But it, for whatever reason, this is the account that Mark gives us. And look at what it says here in verse 3. This man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, now think about this. I, I want you to kind of get in the mind of the disciples right now. Think about the things in your life that have scared you, like truly frightened you. I'm not talking about somebody jumping out. I'm talking about a weird situation where you were just like, that was scary, right? There's, there's, we've all been there, right? Imagine where these disciples are in this story. Like they are literally, they just survived nearly drowning to death on the Sea of Galilee. They just survived that. And they finally make sure. So it's a whole night of tossing and turning, maybe getting seasick out on the open water. They finally hit the shore. And as they hit the shore, a strong, screaming, bleeding, crazy, naked person is running towards them. That's frightening, okay? That's scary. I don't care who you are, that's frightening. And here's the point of all this, and this is kind of a, a, an interesting point to make, and it's something that, like, when you think about it, we don't want to give too much credence to this, but there is truth to this statement, and we see it right here in Mark 5, that the satanic power of the enemy is both real and rampant. Like, that's a real thing, guys. The enemy is at work, get this, 24-7 to attack every person that is made in the image of God. That is every human being on the face of the planet. Satan, the enemy, is out to attack those that have been made in the image of God. This man, think about it, he's cutting himself. He's destroying and distorting God's very image and creation. Satan is both real and he has been given temporary reign 
here on earth. 1 John 5, 19, you can write this reference down and look at it later. But it says this, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's kind of hard for us to kind of think about right now. But right now, there's been temporary reigning authority or power that the enemy has on earth as we speak. And we see this play out. We see it in Mark chapter 5. And we see this play out right here in good old Shelby, don't we? And, And here's what we need to understand the difference of before we get too frightened or too scared. There's a difference between possession and oppression. So possession, and this is what this man is dealing with. He is being possessed by demons. And it it carries the word ownership. Possession means ownership. Uh, The word there is demonizomai. And it's basically this idea of a person owning another person. a A demon using the body of another person. Owning them. And a believer, we know this, if you're a believer in this room, let me just tell you, this is not possible for you. You cannot be possessed. You cannot be owned. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says this, it's God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, that if you're a believer in Christ, there is nothing that can change ownership. It says there, he set his seal of ownership on you, and that cannot be changed. So there's possession, but then there's this other word called oppression. And oppression means to limit power. The actual Greek word that's used in the Bible to describe this is kata. Dinastu. Kata dinastu. Kata means to hold down or to limit. Dinastu means power, to hold down power, to limit power. And everywhere in Scripture that the Bible talks about Christians or believers being oppressed by Satan, that's the word that's used there. This idea of limiting power. And many believers are oppressed. And have allowed the enemy to actually have a foothold in their lives. To have a place in their lives where, they are, where the enemy is literally limiting the power that God wants to perform and do within your life. And it's been freely given. Like you've given that over to him. In fact, there's people in this room right now, you are truly being oppressed by the enemy. Think about this man for just a minute. Think about what we just read, just the sad realities of what we see in this man's life. One, no physical chain could bind him, but he was not free. Like, think about this. This man can literally rip chains off, but he is not free. Secondly, he was more comfortable among the dead than among the living. You didn't find him in the town of Gersa. No, he's out at the tombs wandering around this section right here, wandering around this very place, and he's more comfortable hanging out with dead people than he is around living people. And third, and this is to me one of the sadder things, he hurt the only person he could, himself. This was the reality of this man. 
This man that lived in this place, this man that was strong but not really free, and this man who was continually hurting himself. And here's the thing. When we hear about this guy, some of us immediately start to relate to this guy. You know what it's like to appear strong and inside be tormented. That every time you try to move forward in your walk with Christ, every time you try to move forward in life, it seems like you're always having to step back. It's this oppression that the enemy has put on your life. In fact, one of the greatest oppressing weapons the enemy uses is the rewind, the replay, and the review. And this is something we all experience in our lives. And for some of us, man, this is what's limiting power in our lives to live out the Christian life. The rewind, the replay, the review. How does this work? It works like this, that there is in our mind's eye this temptation that Satan brings to us to literally live out our bad choices. In fact, for some of us, like when it comes down to it, that we feel like the Lord's leading us to do something. We feel like the Lord's kind of calling us out to do something, to either be a better father, to either be a better spouse or a husband, to, to maybe start serving in the local church. And what does Satan do? He starts playing a, on the big screen of our mind our bad choices, doesn't he? He's like, all right, Jonathan, let's go and turn the lights down, get the popcorn out, because you remember a year ago when this was going on in your life? You remember that bad choice you made? Let's rewatch that. Let's rewind it, let's replay it, and let's review these bad choices. And we, we find ourselves in a place of shame and guilt because all Satan does is just rewind and replay and review the same things, the same struggles, those past bad choices that we've chosen to make, man, we're still held by those. And, and the sad part about it is it's a double whammy because he's the one that tempted us with it in the first place, right? I mean, Satan's the guy that tempts us. He brings temptation into our lives. And you know what he says? He says, hey, it won't be that bad. Just do it. It's, it's, not, it's not that big a deal. And what happens the minute we do it? This, rewind, replay, review. The very thing that he encouraged us to do is the very thing he, he calls us out on. He's like, you are so stupid. How could you fall for that? Again, this is the tactic of the enemy. And it's the condemnation over us that keeps us believing that we can never really draw near to God or worse, that God doesn't even love us. And some of us, I'm just going to say it, some of you are here today and you're here desperate. You're desperate. You're desperate because you have been living out this nightmare in your life day after day. And you never feel wanted by God. You never feel deserving of God's love. You never feel like he could possibly love you for who you are. Because the enemy has oppressed your life so strongly. And you live in this place of sin. And you live in this place of shame. And it's just this cycle that goes on where he just keeps playing this over and over again on the big screen of your mind. And for some of you, you're, 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 just, you're here today and you're saying, if I could just 
start over. Man, if I could just start over today, man, that would be so great. Whether you are possessed or oppressed, the truth is that Jesus is in the room today and he wants to encounter you. Look at what it says here in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, this man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his face, or excuse me, fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? They recognized Jesus as God. Did you see this? In God's name, don't torture me, for Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now what we see here is this spirit is literally coming to God and pleading with him. He actually believes in Jesus. He believes who Jesus is. Even demons believe, but they lack repentance. In fact, James 2.19 says this, You believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And this is what we've said every week, that it's not just about knowing who Jesus is. It's not about just believing. It also requires repentance, that we would turn away from our lifestyle and follow Jesus. And their reverence for Jesus here is not motivated by repentance, but out of a horrifying recognition of their divine judge. They know who Jesus is. They know exactly what he's about. And yet there is no repentance in their, 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 their kneeling to him. Jesus knew immediately that this man wasn't the guy actually doing the talking. It was someone else or many people. And, and look at what it says here in verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Now again, we've said this every week, I think. Anytime Jesus asks a question, he's not asking the question for his own knowledge. He already knows what this man's going to say. He already knows what this man's name is. He's asking this question for, for our sake, for others, for his disciples to understand the complexity of what's really going on behind the scenes here. And so Jesus asks this man his name in verse 9, and it says this, My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. Now this, this doesn't seem like much, right? It's like saying, hey, my name's Legion. Hey, Legion, my name's Jesus. That, that's not what we're getting here. Legion is not a proper name. It's not a name anyone was named in, in, in the first century. It's literally a military term that equates 6,000. A legion of soldiers, a legion of people would be the equivalent of 6,000 armed and dangerous soldiers. And this man is calling himself that. To kind of put that number in perspective, because for some of us we struggle with, with numbers like this, thinking like uh, quantifying this up. I did some research this week, and if you took the, the entire student body of Gardner-Webb and the entire student body of CCC you would get 5,980 people, 5,980 students. Can you imagine this for just a minute? Can you imagine potentially that many demons living in this one man? 5,980 legion. This is a powerful host 
of demonic activity that is essentially owning this man right now. And then verse 10 says this, and he, this, this is the demons talking, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Now here's what was going on. They didn't want Jesus to send them to the abyss where demons are tortured. Now this is a spiritual realm thing and it was, it's kind of, kind of a higher thing to think about. But there's this place called the abyss. And if the, if the demons were in the abyss, they knew they'd be tortured there in the abyss. And they didn't want that. They weren't ready to be locked down and locked up waiting for judgment, they wanted to continue to reign on the earth. So they begged Jesus instead to go into the pigs. And what I find so great about this story is that there are 6,000 demons strong that literally tremble in the presence of Jesus. That what no human being could tame with ropes or chains, Jesus restrained with his very presence. That The satanic power of the enemy is both real and rampant, but the saving peace of Jesus is steadfast and supreme. Yes, there is an enemy that is strong, but Jesus is stronger. His power and authority are supreme, so much so that they literally have to ask Jesus for permission to go anywhere. Verse 13. Jesus gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. So Jesus gives them permission to go into the pigs nearby, and then they enter the pigs, and they do what demons do. They create destruction. And they go down the steep bank, the bank that you saw just in that picture a minute ago. They go down this steep bank and literally drown in the waters there at the Sea of Galilee. Verse 14, those that were tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Now, I love this because in one little verse, we get all that Jesus did for this man. We see the power of Jesus. Jesus delivers this man from demons. Jesus calms him. He gives him rest. Why? How do we know this? He's sitting down. Jesus covers his shame, he's clothed, he's dressed here, and Jesus restores his mind. It says there, he's in his right mind. He completely changes this man and gives him a new start to his life. And you would think at this point in the story, you would think, Wow, like these people, they come back from the village. They walk up to this man who they know has been living in these tombs and and just been crazy. They walk up to this man. They see a totally different person. You would think in the story, the people would cheer. They'd hoist this man up on their shoulders. They'd parade him around the city. They would have a big celebration for the guy who was once demon-possessed, now living a great life. But that's not what it says. 
The end of verse 15, after seeing this man and seeing what's happened to him, the end of verse 15 says this, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Think about this. They were more afraid of a free man than a possessed man. They preferred the company of dangerous demons over the company of the divine deliverer. These people didn't really care about this man. They didn't really care much about Jesus. They cared about one thing. Bacon. I'm serious. They cared about bacon. These people were raising pigs to eat. And when their stuff, when their livestock went into the, into the ocean, this was their primary concern. And, and granted, that represents something, right? It represents this. What these people really wanted was their normal life. They just wanted to continue to live their normal life. They were fine with Legion up there on the hillside doing his rants and raves and cutting himself they didn't want their normalcy, their normal typical life to change. That the societal pressure of staying normal is typical and it's temporal. And they knew this, that if Jesus stays around, things won't stay normal. And let's be honest, this is not just something in the first century. This is what our society preaches to us. That we need to live the normal life. Just stay within the normal bounds of what life is supposed to be. That's what society teaches us to want. Like from the day we, we start elementary school, what are we going towards? We're trying to graduate high school. And then when we graduate high school, we either go right into the workforce or we go off to college. We get a good job. You get married, you raise some kids, not too many kids, but you raise a couple kids, you buy a house, you acquire a few toys, go on vacations, and sure, you're going to visit the church, you're going to go there every few weekends, you're going to go there a couple times. You're going to occasionally help someone. You're going to see a guy at the Walmart and you're going to say, you know, this guy needs some money and just you're going to drop it out. You're going to roll the window down just enough to hand him a dollar. You're going to give some money to the church. Sure, you'll, you'll do all that. And then you retire. And you live your remaining days chasing a few good hobbies, like some things that you really enjoy in life. You, maybe you scratch off your, some things on your bucket list. Then comes death. Then comes standing before Jesus. And for some of us, when we stand before him, we're going to stand there with a life, a purposed life the size of a fly. Regretting that you were given all this potential from God 
and yet it was all wasted. That what you did with this breath called life was so ordinary at the end of the day that your impact meant little to nothing, both typical and very temporal. All the while, Jesus is saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to lose their life, or excuse me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Guys, the pull of normal is so strong. It's so strong. Whether you've been following Jesus for a year or three decades in my, in, in my personal life, the pull for just keeping the normal, for keeping all those things wrapped up, the pull is so strong. Like even this week, I'll just tell you of a, a huge failure. Like literally, my wife calls me and she, she calls me and gives me this, this opportunity for us to bless a family in, a, in, a, in, a, in an unusual way, just a neat little opportunity. And here's the, the first thing that steps into my head is, that's going to mess my little schedule right up. And I told her on the phone, I'm like, don't do that. We're, we're not doing that. Or we'll do it, but we'll only do it this particular night and that's it. And, and literally, I got off the phone with her, and, and I'm literally in the middle of writing this. And the Lord just convicted me, like, what are you doing? You are so worried about protecting your normal, ordinary life that you're not ready or willing to do anything of value for the kingdom of God. It's crazy. At the end of this story... The villain is not the demon-possessed man. The villain winds up being the everyday people who aren't willing to sacrifice their normal for God to do something new. Look at what these people missed. They literally eject God from their city. In fact, nowhere recorded does Jesus ever visit Gersa again. Why did they do this? Because normal lives don't have room for a radical Jesus. Normal lives don't have room for a radical Jesus. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. I mean, this is such a great plea, a great prayer to Jesus saying, hey, can I go with you? Can I follow you? I mean, at this point, Jesus could have easily upgraded his disciples, right? I mean, a former demoniac on the all-star 12, like that'd be a good thing to have in the the team, right? Look at the next five words. Verse 19, Jesus did not let him. Can you imagine the devastation for this man at that moment? Like this man has just been freed by this person, by this Jesus. He, he recognizes who Jesus is. He's, he's been changed and he wants to go with Jesus. And here's what's even crazier. 
The villagers ask a question. They request something from Jesus. Jesus honors it. Even the demons request something from Jesus. Jesus says yes. He honors it. The one guy in the story that makes a pure request, and Jesus says no. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He's saying, hey, you want to do something great and exciting and radical for me? He says, go home. Not Nepal, not Guatemala, not Sweden or the Middle East. No, he's saying, hey, I, I don't need you to go a thousand miles away. I just need you to go back to where you are living. What was needed here? was for this man to spread the good news of what Jesus had done in the very place that this man lived. Imagine this moment with this man. I, I know these words aren't in the text, so I'm not saying they are, but when I think of this moment, I, I think of Jesus really looking at this man saying, Hey man, I love you. I love you. But I don't just love you. You see, all these people behind you, they're telling me to leave. But they're not telling you to leave. Jesus knew here, guys, that God wanted to use this man to impact the place that he was living. Verse 20, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis. Decapolis means ten cities, ten little cities in that little area there. How much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. That yeah, the societal pressure of staying normal is typical and it's temporal. But the self-denying path of living radical is both exciting and it's enduring. This man denied himself, denied his desire, even though it was a pure desire to radically follow not on some far or distant mission field, but to live radically in his home. As a result of this man's obedience, a large community of believers was established in this area and great influence was put in this area for the kingdom for many centuries. This man understood that you cannot separate the assistance of God from the assignment of God. We tend to think radical. We think of Nepal. We think of these places. But to live radically, what does it look like for you? What does it look like for you to live radically at Walmart? What does it live for you, look for you to live radically at Gardner-Webb? Or Crest High School? What does it look for you to live radically at Clearwater? When you're shopping at Marshall's or Jefferson School? What does it look for you to live radically at Atrium Health? Or your very own neighborhood? What does that look like for you?
No longer bound in sin or shame or insecurity or fear or baggage. No longer content to live a normal life. Truly free to help others and point people to Jesus. That's what brings excitement and that's what brings something that's going to last beyond this little life that we have here on earth. Your new life in Christ is not just for you. Forget about 10 cities. What about 10 people? What kind of impact are you making? Have you encountered Jesus? Has this changed who you are? If you have met Jesus, your life should look radically different. I want you to imagine this little illustration with me for just a minute. Imagine this morning if I had rode my bike to church this morning, like from my house. Imagine I'm riding my bike to church, and let's say Wes and his, the band, let's say they finish, and all of a sudden the stage is empty, and the podium's here, but I'm nowhere to be found. Like, you can't find me. I'm not here. And all of a sudden, like five minutes late, everybody's sitting around wondering, where, where's Jonathan? Where, 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 where's he at? Like five minutes later, I just bust through these glass doors. Like, I'm, I'm huffing and puffing. I'm, you know, drenched in sweat. I've got my bike sitting there, and the bike looks great. And, and you know, I come in, and I get here, and I'm, I'm up here, and I say, guys, I'm sorry I'm late. It's been a crazy morning. You know, I was crossing 74 right here in front of Marburg. I was crossing 74, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this 18-wheeler just hits me head on on my bicycle, like literally right, 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 just blindsides me. And you know, I, after that happened, I just, I got up real quick, I dusted myself off, and I just, I ran in here and jumped on stage, and that's why I'm late. Who would believe that? Right? I mean, an 18-wheeler hits you off a bicycle and you just walk it off and, and show up here? No one would believe that. You know why? Because encountering an 18-wheeler head-on changes you. And man, I think sometimes this world looks at our life, they look at us, we say, yeah, I'm a follower. I, I, I follow Jesus. I've encountered Jesus. And I think a lot of times they look at us the same way you look at me when I tell that story. Really? You've encountered Jesus? Your life doesn't really look any different. You, you kind of live normal like I do. When we encounter Christ, he changes us. It changes everything about us. We are no longer the same person. We are no longer content with the normal, typical, temporal life. We are set ablaze for radical living that's both exciting and it's also enduring. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, where are you at this morning? Are you living out victory in Christ or are you just being oppressed by the enemy every time you turn around are you allowing him to replay 
the same mistakes you've made over and over again. And for whatever reason, you've just allowed that to cripple your life. You've not done anything great for God because you've been so crippled by your past bad decisions that you can't move past it. And today, Jesus wants to speak life into that right here and now. Maybe, maybe you, you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've encountered him. But your life really doesn't look anything different than anyone else. You are just living out the normal existence that society tells us to live. And he's saying, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That radical living might not be going to Nepal or might not be going to the other side of the world. That radical living might be just walking across the street to your neighbor. What is your life? Is it going to count for something? In this moment, I'm going to ask you here in just a minute, we're going to stand to our feet. There's going to be partners, prayer partners at the front. I want to invite you. Maybe you want to talk to one of them, pray with one of them. Maybe you want to get around this altar. But I want to invite you to just allow the Holy Spirit to maybe reveal in your life what needs to go, what needs to change. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never encounter Jesus. You're not a follower of Christ. Maybe today is the day you decide to be set free from the possession or oppression of the enemy. Maybe today's your day for that. So with your heads bowed, if you would just go ahead and stand to your feet before we sing, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this moment we have, Lord, to just be in your presence, Lord. To recognize, Lord, that being in your presence, encountering you is more than just knowing who you are. It's adjusting our life. It's overhauling parts of our life, Lord. To model who you are, Lord. God, we don't want to settle for normal and typical and ordinary. We want to live like you have called us to live. Father, help us to be obedient in this moment. In Jesus' name, let's sing it.